Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, an improved and expanded exhibit at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science explores one of the most important archaeological discoveries in the world. Well, the Wendover site is actually the most significant burial complex in North America. Some of the things which make it so significant is that it is a unique type of burial. It's a pond burial. We don't see that as often. And because this is the most complete population that has been excavated in North America from this period about seven to 8,000 years ago. We'll discuss the notorious Ashley Gang, a group of murderers, bank robbers, and rum runners from the early 20th century. Well, as you said, Baker got an anonymous tip that the gang was heading north along the old Dixie Highway along US-1, and he decided to contact the sheriff in St. Lucie County. They got together a group of uh, sheriff's deputies, and they decided that the best place to stop them would be the bridge going over the uh, Sebastian River. And we'll talk about immigration to Sanford. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Windover Dig in Titusville, Florida, was one of the most important archaeological discoveries in the world. Nearly 200 ritualistically buried bodies were discovered, wrapped in the oldest woven cloth found in North America. The amazingly well-preserved remains were determined to be between 7,000 and 8,000 years old, making them 3,200 years older than King Tutankhamun and 2,000 years older than the Great Pyramid in Egypt. Patricia Myers is director of the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute and the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. The Windover site is actually the most significant burial complex in North America. Some of the things which make it so significant is that it is a unique type of burial. It's a pond burial. We don't see that as often. And because this is the most complete population that has been excavated in North America from this period about seven to 8,000 years ago. They were able to excavate 168 individuals ranging in age from infancy to old age. And because of that, we were able to learn a great deal about these early lifeways. The initial discovery of ancient remains occurred in 1982 during construction of the Windover Farms housing development near the intersection of I-95 and State Road 50. Glenn Doran was lead archaeologist for the Windover Dig. He remembers his first visit to the site. It was certainly the nastiest looking place I'd probably ever seen. Uh, you know, there were a couple of long rows, spoil banks of peat, you know, decomposing in the summer sun, you know, the weft of, you know, rotting vegetation and sulfur wafting around. And uh, it, it really looked like nothing I had ever worked on before. But then as you walked around, you thought, my lord, you know, there's actually incredibly well-preserved skeletal material in some of this peat. 
And of course, then your mind starts racing with, okay, if, if we've got this much material out of these few, you know, bucket loads of, uh, you know, backhoe work, you know, then you start thinking, okay, what else is in that pond? You know, and from everything we could see and what we know about Florida archaeology, it was, it was an intentional burial area. And in most places, in most time periods, people place artifacts with their deceased as well. So not only do you have the opportunity for the, the simple the, the human biology part of the past, but you also have a, an, an incredible opportunity to capture materials that, that go into these wet sites. In some cases, they are, they're literally things that you never ever see in a typical dry terrestrial site. So it, it opened up just an incredible number of, of possible windows. And, and then you spend a couple of years trying to figure out how to maximize the information if you can figure out how to get the money and if you can figure out how to drain the water. And there's about a thousand other ifs that you have to work your way through. But it just all fell into place. Three archaeological digs were conducted at the Windover site between 1984 and 1986, and the fascinating results of those excavations attracted international attention. Vera Zimmerman with the Indian River Anthropological Society participated in the Windover dig. I was just extremely lucky to be living here when that uh, find was made because that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get to work on a dig like that. It was internationally famous. We had people coming in from all over the world. They had a conference here. It was just, it was outstanding. It told them things that they didn't know up until that time about the archaic period. They had believed before that the people were still living pretty much a nomadic lifestyle. Um, following game. They weren't hunting mammoth and mastodon anymore, but they were hunting deer and other animals. And the Windover dig showed that they were living a fairly settled village life. It was the beginning, uh, the first earliest uh, village life settlements. Um, beside the large sampling of, um, of human remains, because that gives them a really good picture. Physical anthropologists need a lot of samples to make um, judgments about people. So they found um, over a hundred that they could compare for all ages, from children up to adults. And the other thing was that the peat had preserved the brain tissue. And uh, that was just phenomenal. That's not very common. There's only maybe five or six cases in the world where brain tissue's been preserved. So that was really wonderful. Then they also found fabric that had not rotted away, and they could look at the fabric and tell the different kinds of weaves they were using, and they were using extremely sophisticated weaving techniques. That means that 7,000 years ago, they had probably been weaving fabric for hundreds of years because it was very sophisticated weaving. They also found a bottle gourd, which tells them that they were horticulturalists, not agriculturalists, but horticulturalists. Um, encouraging plant growth and using the gourds, using them and making um, bottle con containers for water. So it told them a whole lot that they didn't know about that time period. And uh, I got to uh, guide tours through the site during the week and then I also got to work in the lab. And I'm, I'm very nearsighted, so I got to put all the tiny little numbers on the tiny little pieces <laughs> of bone and and objects that they found, and it was, it was just a wonderful experience. For the past three decades, most of the Windover remains and artifacts have been preserved and studied at the Florida State University Anthropology Department.
During that time, outstanding research has been done that expands our understanding of archaic age people. Jeffrey Thomas is a specialist faculty member in the FSU Anthropology Department who works with the Windover material. It's really done a good job in terms of uh, interacting uh, faculty, undergraduates, and graduate students because everybody's kind of interested in slightly different things. Um, so me myself, you know, I, I can't study the teeth, the cranial modification or cranial variation, um, all of the leg bones, all of the arm bones, like everything myself. Um, so really, the point of having a kind of big collaborative work with lots of different interests and lots of different focuses um, kind of gives you a much bigger and more complete picture of the population. So um, people like Katie Miar did the uh, dental analyses and found that uh, Wendover is remarkably crowded. Their, dent their dent dentition is very crowded for a hunter-gatherer group. We don't see that kind of crowding until you get more agricultural groups. So just kind of weird, odd little things that I think you just kind of pick up on as the studies go on. So the more individuals uh, kind of branch out and look at different things, assess different uh, diseases, uh, different health statuses, uh, demographics, growth and development, kind of every new study really does kind of broaden the, the general picture of the whole population. The only comprehensive exhibition exploring the Windover people is at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. As Patricia Myers explains, the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute is significantly expanding and improving the educational interactive display. The exhibit that's been there is a recreation of the archaeological site, and it's a very interesting and exciting exhibit in and of itself. It gives people the opportunity to walk through what this excavation looked like as they went through the different layers of muck at the bottom of this pond. We also have a mock-up of a burial that's representative of the type of burial position as well as the type of the artifacts that were found with the burial. So what we have right now is great. However, a lot of people think about archaeology the way we think about Indiana Jones. It's this really exciting adventure. You go out and you dig things up. And then sometime later, sometimes months, sometimes years later, scientists say, well, this is what we know because we did this archaeological dig. The part that's missing often is what happens in between those two steps. So what we're going to be doing is we'll be bringing in the laboratory component. We'll have hands-on activities so that people can understand how physical anthropologists take a set of skeletal remains and figure out, was this a man or was this a woman? How tall was this individual? What types of pathologies, what types of illnesses might they have suffered in life? So that's a very exciting component to be bringing to the exhibit. In addition, we have a local artist, Brian Owens, who has created a beautiful life-size bust of one of the Windover women, utilizing a forensic reconstruction that was done in Scotland back in the late 80s or early 90s, as well as the actual cranial measurements from one of the Windover women's skulls. So it will be a very lifelike, accurate representation of what one of these women might have looked like. The updated People of Windover exhibit will include the latest information about ongoing research and look at possibilities for future research. Jeffrey Thomas. I think uh, Windover is really kind of going into more of the digital realm. Um, I, I know we, with added kind of information about DNA um, as well, we've, we've done DNA tests and they've not come back very reliable uh, in terms of the amount of human DNA left. 
Um, so I think the, the additional technology and methodology will be able to maybe extract a little bit more or uh, get a little bit more data on their DNA. Um, but, but increasingly digital, I think, in its, in its kind of use. Um, which is really a great thing because people can come and you know come to the department and actually measure the bones and look at them, and uh, and handle them, uh, or you know they can just kind of go online and and pull up a 3D model and take as many measurements as they can. Uh, so it it really is kind of becoming more of more accessible to a lot more individuals. DNA testing was in its infancy when the Windover dig took place in the mid-1980s and other technological advancements have been made. Study of the Windover people and artifacts will continue to provide new information about our past. Rochelle Marinin is chair of the FSU Department of Anthropology. There are a lot of different kinds of techniques that archaeologists are using these days. One is blood residues, for example. Um, when a stone tool is made, there are microfractures in the uh, fabric of the stone. And when it's used for something like skinning an animal, uh, blood and, and serum and things like that seep into these microfractures and they stay there for a long time. So there is the opportunity perhaps to look at some of the, um, there are only a few artifacts, stone artifacts from this collection. So it's a possibility of looking at those again. Um, another thing is food residues. We really don't have anything, I think, from Windover that might have food residues. That tends to be something that comes with pottery, that, that you know, food um, burns inside the pot or sooting on the exterior of the pot sometimes gives us that information. But at the moment, I think the most pressing need is uh, the genetic one. And as I said, we're hopeful that there will be new techniques that will allow us to retrieve material that can be um, genetically used to sequence this population, you know, each individual if possible. That will give us the most information and also show their relatedness to others um, in Florida. Most of the graduate students studying the Windover materials today weren't even born when the first discovery was made in 1982. The new People of Windover exhibit might inspire future generations of anthropologists and archaeologists. Patricia Myers. What I wanted to inspire is curiosity in the sciences and how we know the things that we know. The interesting thing about anthropology in the United States is that it's a four-field sub-discipline approach to understanding humanity. There's cultural anthropology, there's archaeology, the physical anthropologists are the ones who actually studied the skeletal remains, and there's also linguistics, which is a small but important component. We're going to try and explain how all of these subfields come together and also how it's interdisciplinary with geneticists and others who bring their information to the picture for us to help understand these past cultures. That's what I hope it inspires, is just that curiosity, whatever scientific direction someone may take later. The improved and expanded exhibit, The People of Windover, is at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. The museum is presenting a Windover weekend, November 13th and 14th, the exhibit preview Friday evening will include gourmet hors d'oeuvres, wine and beer, live music, and special guests. The exhibit opening will continue that Saturday with a panel discussion called Windover Archaeology, The Next Generation. Tickets are available now at myfloridahistory.org.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, find original audio and video, and access great books about Florida. While you're there, become a member of the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Anyone can see, for whiskey is sold in every town in the good old USA. Old policeman will arrest you, he'll lock you up in jail, he'll drink up all your liquor and turn you out on bail. Prohibition was a failure in Florida, at least partially because of the Ashley Gang, a notorious group of murderers, thieves, rum runners, and pirates. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, on November 1st, 1924, Sheriff Bob Baker learned that the Ashley Gang was traveling to Jacksonville to rob a bank. How did Sheriff Baker stop the Ashley Gang? Well, as you said, Baker got an anonymous tip that the gang was heading north along the old Dixie Highway along US-1, and he decided to contact the sheriff in St. Lucie County. They got together a group of uh, sheriff's deputies, and they decided that the best place to stop them would be the bridge going over the Sebastian River. So they set up the blockade. There was a chain with a small red light, and they stopped every car that went past. And eventually, they saw the Ashley's car coming up. They stopped the car, ordered the men out, and then, of course, found a cache of weapons and uh, knew that they, they had the right guys. They ordered them out of the vehicles. And then from there, the story kind of changes quite a bit, and there are different theories. Now, one is that the gang tried to escape or at least tried to pull a, a secret weapon from one of the pockets, and the sheriff's deputies began to shoot. But there are some later accounts that state that the gang was actually handcuffed and was executed by the sheriff's deputy at the request of Sheriff Baker. Well, John Ashley was born in the Everglades in 1893, and his family moved to West Palm Beach in 1911. How did John Ashley begin his notorious life of crime? Well, that's a fascinating story. You know, John Ashley is one of those characters in Florida history that over the years, the story of where he really began his criminal life and how he got involved in this has changed quite a bit. But we do know in 1911, John Ashley was accused of the murder of a Seminole Indian by the name of DeSoto Tiger. Uh, There was a dredge that was working to drain the Everglades, and they pulled up the body of, of the Seminole Indian, and some of the last people who saw him saw him with John Ashley. What is believed happened is that John uh, and DeSoto Tiger were hunting together, but John decided to take all of the skins and the pelts with him and killed uh, DeSoto Tiger. So we know that he was at least accused of that crime in 1911, never actually convicted, but accused. Um, But prior to that, we know that John Ashley had spent quite a bit of time in the Everglades. In fact, in the teens, he became the king of the Everglades, as he was known locally. That was his uh, self-proclaimed name. But he had spent quite a bit of time hunting and trapping and had learned sort of from his father how to live off the land and distrust the civilized way of life. His father was never one for the law, uh, you might say, but they later kind of escalated their, uh, he and his brothers escalated their criminal activities to robbing banks. 
And a lot of this information, you might ask, okay, well, how do we know that? There was a book that we're looking at today that was published in 1928 by Hicks C. Stewart. And Stewart was a resident of this part of Florida during this time, in the late teens and early 20s, and actually knew the Ashley gang. He knew the brothers and knew quite a bit of the family. In fact, even interviewed John Ashley uh, prior to his death in 1924. So a lot of these anecdotes we get from Stewart's book that was published in 1928, just four years after Ashley was killed. And he says here in the opening chapters of John Ashley, quote, out of the somber stillness of the Everglades comes the story of John Ashley, bank robber, highwayman, pirate, hijacker, and murderer. Out of its labyrinth maze of gnarled and twisted mangroves came John Ashley and his teens, heavily laden with otter and other furs that found a ready market and brought the necessities of life to the typical, quote, cracker family. The pioneer of South Florida of the 90s, uh, 90s and early 1900s relied upon the gun, rod, and trap for food in a quickness of eye, sensitiveness of ear, and readiness of trigger finger were attributes vital to his existence, unquote. Yeah, and he had quite a colorful gang as well. There was a, a female member named uh, Laura Up the Grove who always had a 38 caliber revolver strapped to her hip. And Hanford Mobley was another member of the gang who actually dressed as a woman to uh, rob the Stewart Bank in 1924. So they did all kinds of activities, including rum running, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, the Ashley gang was involved in, in so many different attributes. In fact, many of the new local newspapers at the time would attribute any major crime in South Florida to the Ashley gang. Uh, oftentimes, they were right. Uh, now, John Ashley was incarcerated several times. He also escaped several times from prison. In fact, his latest would have been from Rayford Prison, the state penitentiary in Rayford, Florida. Uh, he was able to escape from a, a road crew and then made his way uh, back to South Florida. So he always came back to their hideout in the Everglades. But uh, you're right, they would also intercept uh, rum so they were creating their own rum in the Everglades. They were moonshining themselves, but they would also go out and rob the other moonshiners and the bootleggers. John Ashley is one of the only individuals known to have robbed the West End liquor distillery in West End Bahamas. He and an accomplice actually sailed over there and robbed the, the epicenter, the actual manufacturing plant of this liquor, and then made his way back to Florida. Again, he was apprehended several times, but was able to escape until that, that fateful night in November of 1924. Well, after robbing the bank in Pompano of about $8,000 cash and $18,000 in securities, uh, the Ashley gang did escape to the Everglades. Before going into hiding, though, Ashley issued a challenge to Sheriff Baker that would lead to his downfall, right? Yeah, that's right. Now, Ashley and Baker had this long-standing feud that lasted really over a decade. Baker was constantly just on the heels of Ashley. And that final challenge was actually a bullet that was left for Baker, and, and he gave it to a, a taxi driver. So after they robbed the bank, they uh, told this taxi driver, they said, listen, uh, we'll tell you where your car is, and also take this bullet and give it to Sheriff Baker and tell him I'll be waiting for him in the Everglades. And it didn't work out well for John Ashley and the Ashley gang because Baker, as we started with, uh, ended up uh, having them all killed on the Sebastian Bridge that night in 1924. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Prohibition is a failure, as anyone can see. For whiskey is sold in every town in the good old USA. Oh, the policeman will arrest you, he'll lock you up in jail. He'll drink up all your liquor and turn you out on bail. This is Florida Frontiers. The small town of Sanford, Florida was once much larger than its neighbor, Orlando. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at immigration to Sanford. When I first dug into the census data in Sanford, I was actually rather 
taken aback at how metropolitan Sanford was for its size. Um, it because you know it's not it's not what one thinks of when one thinks of a small town as it was. It was a boom town, but it was still a small town in Florida. Um, but it's it's in part because of um, the way in which it's marketed, Florida markets itself, and Henry Sanford in particular, because he was living in Europe himself. Uh, he had a lot of connections through Europe. He was a diplomat, uh, and so he was able to attract you know an, an impressive number of of European immigrants uh, to the area. So when when I looked at the census data, I was really amazed at how how diverse the population was. That was Dr. Mark Long, an instructor with the Sea Education Association. He sat down with me to talk about immigration into Sanford in the late 19th century. Here, he tells me the characteristics of the wave of immigrants coming to Sanford. What's unique about that in some regards is that it was a trend that ran counter to the rest of the South. This is a time in which the United States itself is experiencing a massive uh, boom in immigration, from, particularly from Europe on the East Coast. Uh, it, so there's massive immigration into the, into the East Coast. The American South was experiencing a net loss of, of foreign immigrants into the American South. And so Peninsula Florida stands out as a, a sort of profound counterexample to what's happening to the rest of the South. Central Florida looks much more like the Northeast portion of the United States, right, with all this in-migration of European immigrants. Uh, than it does like the like again like the rest of the South, which is experiencing a net loss. Uh, also, there's a lot of middle class immigrants coming in, right? Uh, it, unlike New York, I mean, there certainly are working class immigrants coming into Central Florida, but there's an, a number of more well-to-do immigrants as well coming in, uh, and they, they're being attracted to Florida in many ways for the same reasons that Northerners are being attracted to Florida because of the climate, because of the opportunities to make money on land development, etc. But they established, in particular, uh, British immigrants established, established a tennis club in Sanford, for instance, right? The sort of unique symbol of both their Britishness and, and also their, uh, their wealth. Immigrants who came to Sanford originated from Europe. Yeah, specifically, my work looks at the Sanford area in, in particular, and it was a, an exceptionally international town for its size and location. Uh, there were immigrants, there were immigrants from Sweden, certainly, which is probably the most famous immigrants into um, into Sanford because Henry Sanford brought them uh, over as indentured servants to begin with. But there were immigrants from England. There were immigrants from from the British Isles in general and from almost uh, every significant country on the European mainland as well. There were Italian immigrants. There were Spanish immigrants. There were Russian, uh, French, German immigrants. Uh, this well pre-Germany, uh, but they're listed by by the, the you know, what is now the German state uh, in the in the census data, as well as from the the lowland countries. I mean, there's hardly a country in Europe I can think of at the moment that wasn't represented in the in the census data uh, since Sanford in the 1880s, in particular 1890s. Dr. Long tells me what jobs and businesses these immigrants contributed to in the city of Sanford. There, there's some factory production going on. Uh, they are not atypically, depending on where they're from, cigar rollers in, in particular. There are cigar factories or production facilities in Sanford. In fact, many of the little towns in Florida at the time were rolling their own cigars, which is something that, we, that gets lost in the sort of narrative of Tampa and Key West as the sort of great cigar production places, which they were, but it, it wasn't just those locations. Uh, a lot of them small merchants. Um, a lot of them would would try and try their hand at farming. Citrus was a was a big draw again, just as it was a draw for Northerners with capital to try and create citrus plantations. There were plenty of pockets of immigrant communities. Lake Mary is an example that were that were set up to to sort of uh, attract immigrants from Europe to start citrus plantations. Henry Sanford himself partnered with capitalists in England to target immigrants from 
the European Peninsula to buy land from Henry Sanford or from from the company and to to, to set up five acre citrus plantations uh, in in the Central Florida area. And so he was bringing people from Italy uh, again from the, the 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 main section of the European continent. That was Dr. Mark Long. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series A History of Central Florida. Find it on iTunes and YouTube. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you join us right here every week, but if you miss an episode, the program is now available as a podcast from iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.